Okay. <clears throat> We're still having bad weather in Texas. We had bad weather here in Oklahoma, too. <laughs> we had a lot of rain. The Parsha is Shoftim. And where I'm going to begin, we I just talked about how this is about setting up judges and officers, and it talks about the penalties for different crimes. But where we, I want to start, I want to talk about um, setting up a king in Israel. The law is about setting up a king in Israel. Now, what I want us to see here, as we're talking about setting up a king, and what the Torah says about the king is that we can compare, we can see the difference between what the Torah says about a godly king, what a godly king was supposed to be like, and what we see now is leadership in Israel. is kind of sad, but anyway. When you come, this is found in the 17th chapter, starting with the 14th verse. When you come to the land that Hashem your God gives you, and you possess it and settle it, and you will say, I will set a king over myself like all the nations around that are around me. You shall surely set over yourself a king whom Hashem shall choose from among your brethren. Shall you set a king over yourself? You cannot place over yourself a foreign man who is not your brother. Only he shall not have too many horses for himself, so that he shall not return to the people to Egypt in order to increase horses. For Hashem has said to you, You shall not shall no longer return on this road again. And he shall not have too many wives, so that his heart not turn astray, and he shall not greatly increase silver and gold for himself. It shall be that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself two copies of his Torah, in the book from before the Kohanim, the Levites. It shall be with him, and he shall read from it all the days of his life, so that he will learn to fear Hashem, his God, to observe all the words of his Torah, and these decrees to perform them, so that his heart does not become haughty over his brethren, and not turn from the commandment right or left, so that he will prolong years over his kingdom, he and his sons amidst Israel. So this is a formula for the king to be successful. So let's go back and we're going to look at this a little bit. First, you know, it sounds like when we think about the time when Israel chose the first king, and we're going to look at that in a minute, that it sounded like it was a negative thing, that it was supposed to not happen. That what was wrong with Israel? I mean, wasn't God a good enough king? I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that question, Debbie. Um, but yet, it is a mitzvah. Now, it was only a mitzvah when they would come into the land. That they weren't supposed to set a king over themselves while they were wandering in the desert. And, Rob Hirsch even brings out that they weren't even supposed to set a king over themselves while they were settling the land while they were conquering the land. Yahushua was the, the leader of the people. Then they had the different judges who were leaders of the people. 
and it was while they were in the process of conquering the land that it was not supposed to be until the land was settled. Then they would be able to have a king. And it was supposed to be from among the brethren, not a foreigner. Now we have uh, in the history of Israel, in the history of the Jewish people, when you had Herod the Great, he was an Edomite. He was not Jewish. He was not from the people of Israel. But he became a king because he was an appointee of the Roman government. And, um, and so this was a real problem because this was contrary to the law of the Torah. So, first of all, you know, let's, let's just look at the fact that it was a mitzvah for the people to have a king. And in fact, it was a mitzvah that the people were supposed to desire. And we can see this when we look at um, 1 Samuel chapter 9. And it starts with verse 16. Actually, we can start with verse 15. Now, Hashem had revealed in Shmuel's ear, Samuel, one day before Shaul had come, saying, At this time tomorrow I will send a man to you from the land of Binyamin. You shall anoint him to be ruler over my people Israel, and he will save my people from the hand of the Philistines, the Philistines, for I have seen the distress of my people since its cry has come before me. Now, here is a very important precedent. First of all, when we first read this encounter, it sounds like it's saying that the people were wrong to ask for a king. Because they, what? They were, they were disappointed in Hashem. And yet, here in the book of Devarim, in Parshat Shoktim, Hashem is telling the people that they are supposed to have a king, that it is a mitzvah for them to have a king. That there are certain things that would happen, the necessary things that they would need to have a king in order to do those things. So it was something that was per, not just permitted, but it was desired by Hashem. Now he didn't say to them right away, you're going to appoint a king. So it became something that would be something that the people would have to desire so much not to be like other nations, but to desire this king so much. And this is the principle of desiring Mashiach. Because remember, the king is anointed. He is Mashiach. He is the anointed one. And even look at the, the way that Hashem tells Shaul that you anoint him to be ruler over my people. Anoint him. That's that's Mashiach. And notice this too. Notice this. That in this verse, that since its cry, the people's cry, has come before me, that Hashem withheld this, Mashiach. He withholds this. Until the people cry and they're aching and they're begging, please put a king over us because of the, of the grief that the police are putting on the people. Now, I want to just share a little bit about this verse with you. 
This verse is structured very interestingly. It says, at this time, then it says tomorrow. Now, there are two ways for us to look at this verse. Um, just a second. Let me go back here for a moment. Akreva. Yeah. See here. In Hebrew, it says ka'et, and then it says mahar. So it says at this time ka'et, and then it says mahar. And then in the Torah scroll, in the Hebrew, it has a line between those two words ka'et at this time, and then it says mahar, and there's a line between those two words. And that line indicates something very significant. Very significant. Every time you have any kind of punctuation in the Torah, any kind of thing that's a little bit different, there's a reason behind it. And this is saying something. Because this is saying, not one time, not one specific time, at this time tomorrow, it'll be tomorrow at this time, at 5 o'clock. No, 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 no. There's a line between here splitting those two terms. So it's saying at this time, that's one time. And then it says tomorrow, that's another time. So you have an indication of two things, of, of something happening two times. Two separate times. This is going to happen. Now, one time is in the lifetime of Shmuel. Obviously, the Peshat. You're going to meet this man from the land of Benjamin. And you're going to anoint him ruler over my people. Now, interestingly, in 1996, there was a man named Benjamin. This teaches us something about opportunity that is written in the Torah. 1996, this man named Benjamin ran for the head of the government of the nation of the state of Israel. And the gematria of this verse matched perfectly the gematria of Rosh Hashanah and then the date, the date of the election. It was, it was amazing. Benjamin, Benjamin, Netanyahu was running for Prime Minister against Shimon Peres in 1996. Shimon Peres looked like he was winning. This is after... Oh, it was 96? Or 95? Anyway. It looked like he was winning the election. But, interestingly, the next morning, tomorrow, it was Netanyahu who had won the election was very interesting. And the, the gematria of this verse was exactly the same. Now, it was 96, yeah. At that time, the people of Israel were suffering terrible terrorism from the hands of the Palestinians who called themselves Palestinian. Just like that. From the hand, the, rescue my people from the hand of the 
Plishtim, because the distress of my people and its cry has come before me. Its cry. And the people, believe me, I was one of them, crying with all my heart. Crying. Because the, it was so horrible. It was, it was not easy. It was so horrible, the terrorism. And it was the same thing during the time of Shmuel and Shaul. It was the same scenario. The police team were just harassing and terrorizing the people of Israel. So the people of Israel were crying and crying and crying out to Hashem. Just like they were in those years. And still. But, unfortunately, unfortunately it went the same way. That Shaul was a failure. There was an opportunity. We see that. But opportunities are not always realized. But, you know, we say, I know that a lot of people are saying they wouldn't want Netanyahu back because of his track record when he was Prime Minister. But in my opinion, I have to tell you, I look at this first and I say, maybe the man just needs another chance to do what's right. Because my opinion is he has this spark of Shaul. That this is who he is. People in the left used to even say, here he is, he just prances around, head and shoulders over everybody. And I'm like, did you hear what you just said? Did you hear the way you described him? Head and shoulders over everyone. Just like Shaul. And Shmuel loved Shaul. He loved him so much. It says he kissed him. When he anointed him, he kissed him. He was the hope of the people. Was Shaul. And then he was a disappointment. He broke Shmuel's heart. Well, we had a case in Israel at the same time of Rav Kaduri. Rav Kaduri gave great honor to Bibi Netanyahu. There was a picture of Bibi Netanyahu with the Torah scroll walking behind Rav Kaduri. And Rav Kaduri blessed him. There was never another prime minister blessed by a Kabbalist like that, like a prophet. He blessed him. He loved him. It was amazing, amazing parallel. And my hope is that we're going to see another chance. But, you know, goodness. So that's one of the principles here, is that the people of Israel have to cry out. They have to cry out for Hashem to bring Mashiach, to bring the king. Because this is what he has said in the Torah was appropriate, that he would bring the king. Now, there is sin that the king is supposed to, I'm going to talk about the negative stuff in a minute, but I'm going to talk about the positive stuff first. The king is supposed to have two Torah scrolls. This is the question that Debbie asked about a minute ago, and so we're going to go there next. Now, one of the Torah scrolls was supposed to always be with the king, and the other Torah scroll was kept in the treasury. But we have an incident in this in also in Kings and Second Kings, where there were 
57 years after the death of Hiskiahu, the very righteous king, there were 57 years of wicked kings ruling in Israel. There was first the wicked king Manasseh, who was the son of Hezekiahu, Hezekiah, and then Ammon was his son, and he was even more wicked. And he only lived two years because he was uh, after he became king, because he was so incredibly wicked. Then his young son, Josiah, Yoshiahu, which is one of my personal heroes, because it says there was never a king so righteous as Yoshiahu, who brought the people back to the Lord with all his heart. He served Hashem. He did what was proper in the eyes of Hashem, following in the ways of his forefather, David, and he did not veer to the right or to the left. Now, during this time, we can see, we can understand that there were 57 years where the people were just doing whatever. There was no leadership. And it's a very sad thing in Israel when there is no leadership, when it's just desolate of leadership. And this was the case. Menashe and Ammon were horrible horrible kings. They were not leaders. So we can assume, we can say that they do not have the two Torah scrolls. They didn't write the Torah scroll. They didn't care about that. And so it was like this tradition was forgotten. Then what happened? Yoshiahu as king, he became king when he was just a little boy. And it was just like you know, year after year he did something something more. But when he became an adult, he had the temple renovated. And in the renovation of the temple, and this is found in Second Kings 22, verse 8, Hilkiah the Kohen Gadol said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found a scroll of the Torah in the temple of Hashem. And here a lot of the rabbis believe was this scroll that is described in the book of Devarim. And in fact the scroll that the king would write and would have with him all the time, the people, the uh, rabbis believe was the book of Devarim, of uh, Deuteronomy. So he gave the scroll to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and he brought a report to the king and said, Your servants have counted the money that was found in the temple, in the treasury, and have given it into the hand of the workmen in charge of the temple of Hashem. Shaphan the scribe then told the king, saying, Hilkiah the Cohen has given me a scroll. And Shaphan then read it before the king. It happened that when the king heard the words of the scroll of the Torah, he rent his garment. Why would this happen? except that the people had gone so far away, including himself. They did not know what the law said anymore. And this was a command by Hashem that the king would have the scroll with him at all times, one copy of it all the time. You see pictures of him with this little Torah scroll on his arm, that he is the giver of the law. He is Mashiach. He is 
the king of Yehuda. And Yehuda is giver of the law, keeper of the law. And so, he rent his garments. He realized how far away the people had gone. This is a really amazing, incredible story. about that scroll. So, the rest of the story goes that they had to inquire about the scroll and about how far away from the from obeying it that they had gone. And it was it was it was way too far. And so, of course, we know the end of the story is that the people went into exile because there could be no there really it was too late for repentance. It was a very sad conclusion to that. But that Yoshiahu's righteousness merited that he would not live to see the people go into exile, that he would actually die first and that was like a sign. It's the reason we have the book of Lamentations. Because with the death of Yoshiahu, the exile began. So, and that all had to do with the fact that the king did not have the Torah scroll with him at all times. That this was what Hashem had had commanded was that the that the king would always have the Torah scroll with him at all times, so he could always know what the law was. So. The, the scroll was lost and people didn't even know what it said anymore. It's really a sad statement here. Because, and it shows that people go for so many generations, 57 years was a lifetime for people. You can have grandchildren and you have children and grandchildren who would never hear anything, who would never know anything and just grow up like that. So that was the one thing. Now, there was another part of this command here about the king that he is not supposed to have too many horses and he's not supposed to have too many wives and he's not going to have, supposed to acquire a lot of silver and gold. Now, we're going to go to, we're going to see the downfall and the reason for this, that there was a real good reason for this that Hashem was protecting the people, the protecting the king from a pitfall. Now, one of the kings was, he was known to be the, the wisest man who ever lived, was one of the kings of Israel. Now, King Solomon, Shlomo, is not an easy character for us to understand. And when we look at it on the surface, we think, oh, well, he messed up. But yet, it's not quite that simple. Now, the, the, the commandments of the Torah were such that he was not supposed to have more than... And do you know how many wives a king was allowed to have? Not too many. doesn't tell you how many. How many wives was he allowed to have? You, do you know? Well, the king was allowed to have 18 wives. 18. 
and 18 is a very significant number. It's the number of the Shemona Esrei, our standing prayer. It's the number associated with the spinal, the spinal column that we hold ourselves upright. 18 vertebrae, main vertebrae of the spinal column. And that's how many wives the king was allowed to have. King David had 18 wives. However, King Shlomo had many, many more than that. First Kings, chapter 11. King Solomon loved many foreign women, in addition to the daughter of Paro. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites from the nations of which Hashem had said to the children of Israel do not come into marriage with them and they shall not come into marriage with you for they will surely sway your heart to their God Solomon clung to them for love he had 700 wives a little more than 18 who were noble women and 300 concubines and his wives swayed his heart so it was that when Solomon grew old his wives swayed his heart after the gods of others and his heart was not as complete with Hashem his God as had been the heart of his father David now we notice that there is a comparison of Solomon to David there is a comparison of Yoshiahu Josiah to David and he was excellent. Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the Ashtaroth, the god of the Sidonites, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was sinful in the eyes of Hashem and did not fulfill his obligation following Hashem as his father had done. Then built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the Mount of Olives, facing Jerusalem. And for Moloch, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And he did likewise for his foreign wives. They burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So Hashem became angry with Shlomo, for his heart strayed from Hashem, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and commanded him about this matter not to go after the gods of others. But he did not heed that which Hashem had commanded him. So what's going on here? I mean, we're talking about the man who's considered the most, the wisest man in the world. And yet, on the surface here, it looks like he's just really messed up. First of all, he took too many wives. He had way, way, way too many horses. He had, um, he had, uh, a relationship with Egypt that he shouldn't have had because he marries Paro's daughter. And he is extraordinarily wealthy. He builds up all this wealth for himself. All these things that Hashem told him not to do, told the king not to do. He said, since this has happened to you and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees that I have commanded you I shall surely tear away the kingship from you and give it to your servant. In your days, however, I will not do it because of your father David, 
from the hand of your son will I tear it away. Only I shall not tear away the entire kingdom from him. One tribe will I give to your son for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of your slime which I have chosen. So, what do we see happening here? On the surface it looks like it's pretty bad. Now, with Solomon, one of the things was, one of the mistakes that Solomon made was, we're told that he, and it's all, and, and it's even, it's even iffy to say he made a mistake. It's even iffy to say he sinned, even though on the Peshat level, the Torah says he sinned. But what happened was, Solomon had the, the ability to look into a mitzvah, and he could see the, the reason behind it. And so, in his mind, if he could see the reason behind it, he could fulfill that reason without having to keep the law. And this was a trap. This was a pitfall. Now, when he married these women, what he was doing was he was trying to bring redemption by recapturing all these fallen sparks from among the nations, redeeming the nations by marrying these women to bring them into Israel. He was seeing himself as fulfilling, you know, bringing the whole world into this place of Malchut, of peace. And he was using these women he married these women for that purpose that's what he was doing and even when he was looking into you remember where Rabbi Bax talks about this where Adam looked well Solomon was looking into these different types of idolatry he was investigating them he was wanting to to look into them, to see how to redeem them, how to um, bring them out of the clip how to clean them off. But it was a pitfall and he did not succeed with the women, with the, with the religions of these women. He didn't succeed. But he was that was his that was his goal. That's what he was doing. He wasn't just being lustful or greedy or any of these things that sometimes people think. Solomon had a holy reason for doing what he was doing. But whether it was not the right time, whether he was not capable, you know, if there are a number of things that we have in the um, in Midrashim about Solomon about the things that he attempted to do because he was so his mind, his soul was so extraordinary, was so brilliant, it was so high that he really thought and he intended to be able to for the sake of heaven do all of these things. He wasn't just being lustful. I mean who needs seven hundred wives? Come on. That's crazy. Eighteen is a lot. But seven hundred is a nutty number. But he had a reason. He had reasons that we can't really understand. But the point I'm making with this is that on the surface it looks like he just messed up. But Solomon 
was not you and me. We are not him. To be able to see what he could see, to be able to understand what he could understand, it looks like he just broke every single one of these laws. And that's what it looks like on the surface. And in a way, he did. Because he failed. You know, he failed in what he was ultimately trying to do. But he had a very high purpose, a very high goal in doing this. That he was wanting, that he was desiring to bring all the nations into redemption. To bring all the nations into this covenant of peace. He he was sort of like on a B'nai Noach mission, you see. <laughs> he was trying to bring all the nations to sanitize their religions and bring them all into Israel. But the way he went about it, although he would have had, he could have succeeded. Possibly he could have succeeded. I mean, he thought it through. And what we have to realize, this is the bottom line of what I'm saying. Well, we have to realize that sometimes when we read things in the Torah, when we read this on the surface, it looks like he just messed up. He just was lustful and he was greedy and he just messed up. But what we have to remember is that he was the wisest man in the world. And the wisdom was given to him by Hashem. He was not being lustful. He was not being greedy. That he had a heavenly purpose for the things he did. And the the real kernel of that purpose, the real crux of that purpose is is beyond us to fully understand. But we have to be careful when we criticize him because because he is because he was who he was. Now, he was trying to, you know, he, he did fail. There's, you know, when Joseph went down into Egypt and he was, he became the ruler of all of the world. He also had a mission to touch all the nations of the world. He succeeded. He did not bring the nations into redemption. He did save the world on a certain level, however. And he succeeded. Shlomo, in a way, he succeeded too. Temporarily, he succeeded. Because the world had never known peace in the way that it did during the reign of Shlomo. And kings would come to him in awe of what he knew, of what he could do. But there was still, it, it was a mixture of success and failure. It was a mixture there. Now on the surface, like I said, on the surface, it was just a failure. But, what we can say is, just like when we look at that uh, passage about Shaul, where we say, well, Shaul failed, he messed up. And we look at, well, look what happened in our time when it says, uh, this tomorrow, this time, tomorrow. Well, Netanyahu failed, he messed up. 
But yet, at the same time, we have to see there was a reason why Hashem offered the opportunity to Shaul. There was a reason why he offered the opportunity to Netanyahu. There's a reason. And while we can say, well, it was just a failure, there's no just about it. There was also, there had to be an aspect of success. There was a semblance, there was something in it that was successful. Something that we don't, we can't quite grasp and hold on to. But there was an aspect of success there that was able to carry us on, like it says, this time, tomorrow, where we see that split there between those two words, that there had to be an aspect of success in order to merit there to be a tomorrow. That's the same thing with with King Shlomo. That there had to be an aspect of success in what he did that carries us forward and we can reach back. Because what we're looking at, when we look at the king, whoever they are, Shlomo, Shaul, Yoshiahu, David, whoever we're looking at, these kings are Mashiach. And we're looking at an aspect of Mashiach in each one of them that they played out in our world. And yeah, there were failures. We can think about people who claimed to be Mashiach and all this. We won't even go there. But just looking at the kings of Israel, they were all anointed. They were all Mashiach. And even though we see failures, because they messed up, and I'm not talking about the wicked ones here, I'm talking about the good ones. There was still the spark of success that was able to carry us forward to give us hope for the ultimate time of Mashiach. Gave us a president in the time of Shaul of crying out with all of our hearts that Shem will send Mashiach soon and in our day. But this is something that we have to do, all of us. And the idea of Shlomo HaMelech, that he had all of these wives, and his idea was to bring all of the world under the umbrella, under the, under the, the covering of Hashem. But this is Mashiach. This is his work. This is his goal. And this is the very thing that every person in the world needs to cry out with all of his heart. Say, Hashem, give us a king, your king, your Mashiach. Because we want to be under that umbrella, under that covering of your care. That he will be Malchut in the world and he will cover us. He will be the king that will bring that covering. So, the king of Israel is not supposed to be a king like other nations' kings. He's supposed to be totally different. Totally another kind of leader. And that's what we're looking forward to. And that's what we pray for. That's what we cry out for. So, does someone have anything you would like to add or you would like to ask
arrogance on his part that he could think that he to think he could do it. Um, you could see you could kind of see that that way. Um, but even that we have to be a little bit careful saying it as we look into him. He he just there could have been some of that, and it's easy for us to to think that because it looks like that on the surface definitely it definitely looks like that on the surface but like I said what we want to do is look deeper deeper into this so that it's not on the surface it's deep into this see the real mission of the Mashiach in the world and pray for his success that he will be able to succeed in the mission in the world any other questions or comments Okay, I'm going to just make this announcement again because there were people in the room there are people in the room now who did not hear it before. So I am like on the 9th of September I'm moving to Colorado. So that gives us it gives me about 3 weeks. Next week I have to finish something before I can go. So next week I have to go down to Texas to Anita's to finish some things at her house. I have to finish some a work I'm doing. And um, so I'm planning to do that on Monday. I'm going to be down there on Monday so it'll be very difficult for me to get back in time to teach this class. So this class, this Monday class will be canceled for next week. Bizrat Hashem Tuesday class will be on as usual. Um, when I go to Colorado, that'll be the ninth. That's when I'm leaving. That's a Sunday, and it's probably going to be a two-day trip. So that Monday also will be canceled. And then after I get there, I'm going to be working with Rabbi Bass, and because he teaches some classes on a different system at the same time as I'm teaching on Noahide Nations we're going to be changing my schedule so what I'm planning to do and I have to clear this with Ray but I think it's going to be fine considering that we don't have anybody teaching at 7 o'clock central time that I'm going to change the time of this class and the Tuesday class to 7 o'clock central time that's the plan right now that it's going to be 7 o'clock central time which will be where is everybody Alan and Eileen are you on western on pacific time or mountain time mountain time okay then oh that means it will be 6 o'clock your time 6 o'clock your time 
So, so what I can do is, yes, same as I will be in Colorado. That's right. So what I can do is, if everybody, oh, I think um, I have everybody's email except yours, Ben. Where do you live? No, I said seven o'clock central time. Central time. Because I think everybody in the class is central time or mountain time right now. Okay, yes, that's right. So what I would like to do um, if everybody, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to give you my email address. Okay, this is my email address and you can write to me about the schedule and I'm going to get with Ray about exactly what the schedule is going to be. Now remember, next Monday night, there's no class. And then Tuesday night, we will have a class, and I'll maybe have a little bit more information about what's going to happen. But right now, the way it looks is that this busy classes, Monday and Tuesday classes, will be at 7 o'clock Central Time, which is 6 o'clock Mountain Time. So if you don't have my email address, please go ahead and get it and you can write to me on my email address. Then the Liz teaching, but not on Noahide Nations, he teaches on virtual yeshiva. His class on Noahide Nations is finished, I believe. And then um, Jim Long was teaching. Right, yeah. Oh, okay. Well then, I guess I'll be meeting you there. Okay, great. So, anyway, that's, that's what we're, that's the plan. Thank you.